Hello everyone, thank you very much uh, for having me today. Can everyone hear me in the back? If you can't, just raise your hand and I'll speak louder throughout the, the whole of the presentation. Um, as, as Chris says, my name is Andrew Ferrara. I'm the project curator at Norwich Castle, um, specifically for the uh, Royal Palace Reborn project. I moved down here about, uh, coming up to four years ago now, to work specifically on this, having previously been working on a different castle rebuild project up in County Durham. So I've built a slightly strange niche myself. So if you know of any castles that need to be rebuilt in the near future, do let me know. I'll be out of a job reasonably soon. Um, but today what I'd like to talk to you about is what we're doing at the castle. Um, so I'll start with a little bit about the background, both for the history of the castle and then the project itself, and then look in depth uh, at the interpretation about what we're actually trying to put together. So I hope uh, that will be satisfying for you and uh, raise lots of interesting questions uh, for the end. So just very briefly, um, Norwich Castle. Terribly, terribly, terribly important. First probably established around 1067, right after the conquest. There's a, a wooden Mott and Bailey uh, castle layout, um, but still a vast um, uh, amount of space that's, that's taken up. And I think it's very, very important to remember the impact that this has on the layout of Norwich itself. Initially, you had Tombland being one of the earliest centres. You have the North Wick. You have the settlements along King Street uh, and down along St. Benedict's. And where we are now was less so. Uh, there wasn't a great deal. You had the, the stream, the Great Cocky, essentially defining the Anglo-Saxon settlement. So there's a huge uh, construction project that occurs to create this. The Anglo-Saxon um, Chronicle records essentially 98 houses that are destroyed to make way for this vast, vast undertaking. Um, but quickly after the, the establishment of this, and I should say that it survives a siege as well in 1075, so it's already doing pretty well. Um, there is a project to build a stone keep on top of the mot. And this is, again, a, a huge undertaking. Just to think about the amount of, of conspicuous consumption that the, the mot that the castle now stands on, just the mot alone, would have taken 200 people a year to build. Uh, and then the stone itself for the <coughs> castle is coming in from France, it's being imported from Caen, it's being brought up, so we're seeing a huge undertaking. This is probably beginning in the reign of William II, at some point in the 1090s, we begin to see the work, and then it's continued on. We're not entirely sure when it's completed, we know that Henry I Christmases in Norwich uh, in 1121, so that's possible that he's staying there, you would imagine the great royal court would want to be celebrating in their newly built castle, but uh, it's not entirely clear. It is, however, clear that this is an incredibly important building. It's one on a European level scale of magnificence. All of the detailing that you see on the exterior, which doesn't seem very practical or defensible, is original. It was refaced in the 1830s, but it follows, as you can see from the earlier prints, the original layout that was there. And that is as a point of demonstration. It reminds you of, of cathedrals in many respects. It reminds you of those aspects of architecture. It is because it is making a, a royal and, in fact, even an imperial statement through the stonework. We see that even more so with things like the fantastic archway at the top of the stairs where you have gone into recreating in many respects the ideas of the Roman triumphal arches. It's one of the best existing examples of 
um, secular Romanesque architecture in the country. I mean, this is really the, the, the highest level of craftsmanship and, and capacity, and wonderfully large portions of it survive. You can't really see great deals of detail in these slides, and I apologize for that. You have uh, secular figures, a man here with a shield and a sword, and then another figure here who's actually hunting a boar. You can see his sort of kilt-esque um, uh, device as well as his sword there. But again, these are all reflecting the uh, power, the status, um, the wealth that's being applied to the castle itself. Now, as I, as I mentioned, um, it's changed in the uh, beginning of the 12th century with the expansion of the, uh, the stone keep. But the size of the castle bailey as a whole is enormous. And it really comes to define our understanding of, of Norwich as a city. Um, just to give you a good example here, that is the castle laid out on a modern grid plan. So the entrance, this is St. John uh, Timber Hill down here, and that was the original entrance to the castle site. Uh, the Santander Bank is there. All of the castle meadow um, aspects of where the buses go now is actually within the, the giant um, ditch that surrounded it. So the reason why Boots and Waterstones is on two levels is because it's actually built on the rampart of the external, uh, the external ditch. So that's the size that we're dealing with. It's huge. I mean, the mot itself uh, is the largest mot in, in, in all, of, uh, all of England. It's about 23 acres um, as, a, as a whole site. It's just extraordinary in its size. Um, and this is, again highlighting the importance that it's having as a, a royal castle and a royal settlement. It is the centre and, and seat of royal government in East Anglia. Um, it also has its own different jurisdiction. This is actually a wonderful different point. There are, um, the city isn't able to enter into the bailey. You have different levels of jurisdiction and justice that are existing. And when the excavations took place for the Castle Mao, um, a number of these uh, devices were found. These were potentially um, markers for the boundaries of where the Bailey jurisdiction went. And in the repaving scheme, I think, of the early 2000s, they're actually still around in, uh, in Norris. So you can see this motif has been laid out and see, you can still chart the size of this, of this power. So it's a hugely important castle. It's actually besieged twice. Uh, uh, in its stone form in the 1170s and then again in 1216. It falls both those times, so it's, you know, it's not doing great, but that's okay. Um, but it's really exceptional because many castles aren't ever actually besieged. So it sees a huge amount of, of, of action, shall we say. Um, but, however, by the uh, sort of mid-14th century, it's beginning to, to lose its traction. Um, and that's right around the time, actually. Uh, oh, yes, I should just mention. So we can see um, inside there's remnants of the siege. Uh, I forgot to mention that. That underneath the Bygod Tower, underneath those stairs, the stonework has become pink because of a, of a fire. So this is probably actually left over from an attempt to, to mine through the walls in, in one of those two sieges. And this may actually be the, the uh, reason behind some of the internal changes that are. I'll touch upon a little bit later. But yes, by the, by the uh, 14th century, it's uh, no longer viewed as a, as a royal residence. The, the kings are rarely coming here. 
Edward I does have a hall here, but by that point it's begun to shrink, and the power of the city has itself begun to rise. So you end up seeing the baileys, and by the mid-14th century, all of the baileys are actually given to the city, uh, with the exception of the, the keep and the mound itself, and that retains a point of royal, royal control. Uh, and the stone walls and everything else is actually mined out to build new points in the city. Everyone sort of fills in the, the, the different ditches with, uh, with their rubbish and such. But that's also the period when Norwich is getting its own city walls. So you see this transfer of power. So the role and the defining nature of the castle that used to set out where the city was, establishing where the marketplace is now, exactly in the, in the French uh, quarter, and I can go into that later if people are interested, that begins to be encroached upon. And the ditches are filled in, and the baileys are, are reused. And there's fascinating work um, done, again, in the excavations about how people are using these different plottages um, to, to undertake different styles of, of trade and craft, including bell-making, which is absolutely fascinating. But the castle shifts. So it's no longer a palace, it's no longer a defensive point, but it is very much a center for royal justice. And in that capacity, it becomes the jail. And it maintains that role we have fabulous examples of medieval graffiti carved into the stone walls of the keep itself, uh, some which have come out uh, and some which are still in situ. And there's a wonderful project to be done somewhere for someone to try to chart the levels of all these walls to see what the internal floor levels were like uh, in the later period, because they don't match up with the early 12th century levels nor the later 19th century levels. So it becomes a jail, and it is the centre for, for royal government in, in, the, in the Shire. You have the Shire Hall and the courts still there. Again, as the city is expanding, uh, the Bailey areas are becoming used more and more for, for uh, other uses. The, the cottages are encroaching on it. The cattle market moves there eventually in the 19th century. Um, but there's a major work of shifting it uh, in the end of the 18th century when uh, Sir John Stone adds on part of the entrance that we see here uh, and turns the keep essentially into a cell block. Uh, so by this point, it's uh, without a roof. Uh, he sets up that U plan prison. And this is a wonderful photograph here of, actually you can just see the sky above with, with the crenellation. So it's an open prison plan and the, and the walls are actually stepping out from the original uh, medieval structure. It continues on, and we see the establishment of the radial prison plan, uh, again in the 19th century by Wilkins, uh, and that ironically becomes many of the different galleries that we have now today. Uh, so you remember that next time you're in the Natural History Gallery observing the polar bear and thinking where the cell blocks would have been uh, initially. But by the end of the 19th century, uh, it's still deemed, even with all the refurbishment, not to be fit for purpose as a prison, you have the establishment of Mousehold Prison, uh, and the city decides at that stage that it should be turned into a museum. And it's at that point that the architect, Edward Baldwin, is, is brought in, um, and he begins the grand work of changing the site. So we have a number of these photographs which are fascinating and give us insight both into the status of the keep in the uh, 1890s, but also how much we may have lost when, when Baldwin and his, and his workers were digging down through what we know was still medieval archaeology. Um, 
but he was he was he was an excellent architect and actually had grand plans of trying to bring back the idea of it as a medieval Norman palace. Um, he continues on and he sets in the the arcading on the spine wall as he uh, envisioned it, following the the layers and the levels that actually existed. And originally, he had wanted to to put in the whole floor. Um, sad that we don't dress as stylishly as they used to. I, my hard hat, top hat idea did not take off on the <laughs> construction site, but next time. Um, however, the plan was rejected by the city on financial grounds, so you ended up with the insertion of a false floor uh, at, at this level, floating above the early medieval floor, and the balcony level, you may remember, on the level of the original medieval principal floor. And it worked really, I think, rather wonderfully well as a sort of Victorian, uh, early Edwardian museum with everything in it. You know, with the, just we had snap flying from the, from the ceiling and the whole range of, <coughs> range of collections uh, displayed within the keep. And that was in many ways the way that it stayed uh, through <coughs> until, um, until the present day. And we can see how that's slightly changed. There are aspects of um, the Victorian style still there, but many different displays set down on the principal floor and uh, then on this balcony level. However, it is problematic for trying to understand how it worked as a medieval palace, as a medieval castle. You would walk in and suddenly have this great gaping void, and how does it work? It's also difficult from a perspective of display. Uh, there's not actually a huge amount of space to try to display the ever-increasing uh, medieval collections of the Norfolk Museum Service. Uh, and then uh, following on, there are also aspects of how do you increase approaches to, to engagement. If you remember, you could get onto the battlements via a spiral staircase, but it's a guided tour. You don't have those aspects of the, of the view. So all of these different features uh, coalesce together to be, in many ways, the catalyst for trying to drive the project that we have now. Um, and that's a view that I'm sure you're all very familiar with um, and have been for some time. Uh, so, so what is actually happening in the castle? And I'll, I'll do this because it's a rather useful little video, if I can get it to work, that, that highlights what's going on. Okay. Broadly, you said with hope, yes. Uh, there's a huge amount of change that's happening. Um, we are removing uh, many of the interior aspects of the old entranceway um, to open up the space and putting a new glass roof that goes across. So you have a full run. This increases points of access as well as ease for visitor groups. Uh, this is actually outdated. We've moved these stairs already. Uh, you'll then go up the stairs themselves and the project is looking to recreate those internal spaces. So the original principal medieval floor level is reinserted along with the room divisions as we can understand them historically based on research and comparison with other spaces. These rooms are dressed back to the early 12th century so you'll be able to walk in. The layer below we remove the level and insert a new gallery space in partnership with the British Museum as well as highlighting some of the archaeological uh, features that are still there and perhaps most excitingly there's a new lift that goes in from the basement all the way up to the battlements so that we have access in full capacity so you'll be able to get onto the, onto the roof space uh, and, and peer out in between the Merlins. Um, 
avoiding the crossbow bolts from those unsuccessful <laughs> sieges, or the successful sieges, I should say. Um, yeah, so this sort of gives you a little bit of a sense of, of how, how it's being brought together. I mean, it's, as I say, it's, it's a little bit out of date now. Um, there have been some changes in plans, but uh, yeah, just to give you a sense, that is in many respects uh, the architect's vision of what will come through. I should <coughs> highlight as well with the underscoring importance of access throughout all of this, um, we are building a glass bridge that goes through the side of the keep itself. Because, of course, given the um, limitations on the entrances through the Norman fabric, uh, it's not uh, wheelchair or mobility accessible. So this bridge, <coughs> which links with the lift in the adjacent building, will enable everyone to get through at the same level onto the principal floor. And as part of that as well, we have built the interpretation so that if you go up the bygone stairs, or if you come across the lift, you encounter the same interpretation uh, at both entrances. So, so it's the level, level approach for, for anyone visiting. Um, just to give you a sense, this is actually a reasonably um, out-of-date out of photograph, but yes, all of that's been stripped out. We're now being able to see the, get the right d direction in my head, the east face of, of, of the keep for the first time since the 1960s when all this was boxed in. So the, the plan will be you'll walk in, uh, the entrance will actually have slightly shifted, you'll have a much more open foyer lobby, the old uh, shop, if you remember that, with the sort of zigzag. The zigzag is still there, but the wall is blown out, so that's all open, and then the level above is a new restaurant, which you will be able to access without having to go through the pay barrier. So you'll be looking out over that view, essentially, um, while contemplating where, where to go next. Um, but that all makes it sound very like the undertaking that we're doing inside the keep. Uh, it's been quite an expansive project because uh, everything has come through a set of doors no larger than that. Um, uh, and so just to give you a sense, we began uh, through uh, removing all of the woodwork that was there. So you can see the, the joist holes here. This was the level of the floor that you used to walk on, and that was the balcony level. So all that was stripped out and taken out of that little door over there. Um, and then bringing in appropriate folding cranes, spider cranes, that enable us to, to bring the steels in uh, bit by bit. And then creating vast structures. This is actually the lift structure that's been brought in and moved into place with each one of those um, <coughs> pullock holes, those sockets having to be specifically designed both from a structural engineer perspective, but also with the notion of how do we preserve the heritage. Um, the castle, I should have said, is a uh, grade one uh, star listed building uh, and a scheduled ancient monument, so consent is required before you put a spade in the ground or you start touching the wall. So each point of where we engage with the historic fabric was reviewed and undertaken and discussed to ensure that we are minimizing impact on the earliest material, where we were going through pre-existing uh, Boardman rebuild, that was often much easier. Um, but it's a, it's a vast undertaking, by no doubt. And that gives you just a little bit of a sense of the steels for the new floor that have been going across the whole level. And now we're at a point where, I think this is, again, slightly out of date, you can actually walk on this floor for the first time in, in about 600 years. Um, so this is, where is this? 
this is looking west across into the kitchen space. So again, you would have previously been sort of floating in, 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 in midair there. Um, so that's very much a, a, a swift run through in the light, the light aspects of the, the history and some of the structural elements, and now into a bit more detail on what you'll end up seeing when you go in. So as I mentioned, one of the key things we, that the project is aiming to do is to bring back your understanding of how it worked as a medieval palace in the beginning of the 12th century. So working very closely with a range of academic advisors who have been writing about Norwich Castle for a number of years, as well as comparing it against other models, places like um, Castle Rising, which itself was based on Norwich, but on a much smaller scale, but survives in a better capacity in some ways. We've worked backwards and understood how that principal floor would have been laid out based on uh, surviving material within the masonry, within the walls, room divisions, and, and other models. So you end up with, uh, and I'll just highlight it here, uh, sort of a great hall, uh, a kitchen space, um, uh, the great chamber, the king's chamber here, where the well would have extended all the way up through uh, to that principal floor, and, and the chapel space. Um, there are areas, I should mention actually, God Rugs is the best 12th century toilets in the whole country. No question about it. Um, they really are. Uh, but there are also questions in, in how this space were, were, was laid out, which we can't answer based on later interventions, insertion of brick fabric, insertion of... Uh, and we've used that then as an opportunity to provide points of circulation uh, to enable visitors to move through the space. So this area is less certain, so we put the lift there. Um, Again, this is where that bridge is, is coming through into that vestibule area. Um, but again, not entirely 100% clear how it would have worked in the medieval context, but it enables us to put the roof access or the, the, the roof escape access there as well. So all of this space will be reset to the 12th century. The new walls will be lined uh, as they would have been in a sort of whitewash and the red outlining style. There are parts of Norwich Cathedral which still retain this style, it was a very prominent aspect. Of, of the medieval um, 12th century interior decor to try to outline your, you essentially whitewash over something and you make it look even nicer by, by outlining these large uh, ashlar blocks that probably don't exist in your, in your red lining. So that will be going on many of these interior walls that are new, here, here, here. But then also as part of that, trying to come up with ways of interpretation that will enable the space to be peopled because that was one of the key parts of the feedback we received during the initial consultation phases. Wonderful castle, don't understand how it works, but who was here? What are the stories of people who are in these spaces? So as part of that, we have researched uh, and developed a sort of series of, of panels. Um, so these, these figures here who are based on individuals that we know would have been engaging in the spaces. And so these are illustrated, again, uh, they're, they're really quite vibrant when you see them, but they will be near life-size figures um, there with text that you're able to see in the spaces. Uh, you have, um, <coughs> this is the Sheriff of Norfolk and Suffolk. This is actually <coughs> Henry II's second wife, Queen Eliza, and this is Benjamin, one of the administrators. So it enables us to explore how the castle is being used in different ways, but also some of those individual 
people's stories that we know may have been linked with, with the site itself. Um, in addition to that, there's lots and lots of work trying to reset the spaces. So that's a, a sort of concept idea of how it would have looked like. And, and here's me testing out the actual throne that we've had, that we've had built. And then on the back of that, uh, through my work with my colleague, uh, Dr. Agur Himolka, um, we have been developing and delivering through the hard and fantastic work of our vast volunteer force to the development and creation of textiles and banners that will be adorning the whole of the space. Uh, just to give you a sense, this is sort of the process that we've been going through in order to make sure that the material that we are creating is historically accurate and appropriate for the spaces that, we, that we've been uh, we're looking to recreate. So you have original 12th century manuscripts in the top, the ideas that we're looking for, my very, very bad drawing right next to it for the process, the much better drawing by the carpenter himself, his, uh, the, the chair in its pre-painted state, the throne, I should say, uh, and then the thrones, there they are. And then, again, my colleague Tim Pastel trying them out, making sure that they're robust enough. Um, you too will be able to sit on these thrones, which would be great. All the spaces that we have been creating are designed to be entirely interactive, um, which has been an interesting challenge to create something that is both appropriately medievally delicate and robust to survive the number of visitors we're hoping to, to, to get. Um, so we have a number of thrones. There's also a wide range of chests and tables. You get a sense of the size there for, for scale. Actually, I've got a photograph um, yesterday. These are now being painted, so they're in quite bright, dynamic colours, which are based, again, on the original surviving samples that do exist in a few places, as well as the manuscript material. Um, we have textiles that have been coming through, fantastic table runners and coverings that have been wonderfully woven together, uh, and again, bring that point of colour and dynamism that would have existed in the medieval uh, keep. Uh, but obviously we're much more used to it being a grey and more, more subdued space. Um, the banners themselves, again, draw on pre-existing models, as you can see on the left, with the actual Romanesque capitals and the surviving textiles for their form, and then link themselves further with the ideas that would have been presented and surrounding Henry I as a great monarch and you know, imperial ambitions. So here you have the, the judgment of Solomon, you know, again a reflection of being a good ruler, one of the key models that the, that the medieval world used for their kingship. Uh, another one of our, our wall hangings uh, reflects again some of the, the, the models that they themselves used, so Augustus, Constantine, uh, Charlemagne, and then matching on Edmund of East Anglia, Edward the Confessor, uh, and then William. So you're seeing that line of lineage that the early medieval kings would have set themselves within, being reflected in the textiles and the soft furnishings that we are resetting the space with. So all of that, as much as we can, will give you that notion of what this space would have looked like and felt like and sounded like when uh, he was here, potentially, in 1121 for Christmas. Now, in addition to, to all of this, we also have been developing uh, further material for instance, uh, this is a projection show that will exist within the Great Hall itself. Uh, so that's, that's the door. That's the old door that you would have gone into. It gives you a sense of the size of this. So this is three different projectors that are going onto all different walls. So you'll be sat inside the space and then 
once an hour, potentially once every half hour, there will be an immersive uh, projected show that will come on and you'll be able to watch it sat, sat in the keep space itself. Um, there are two stories that we are exploring. One is the creation of the castle, uh, both including the, the siege of, the, of 1075 all the way up to 1121. And then the second story is looking at the development of uh, medieval Norwich as a, as a city and the wealth and the trade that's coming through. But all this is dealt with in these sort of moving character points. Sadly, I don't, I don't have a, a video to show you how they move across, but it is quite dynamic. Uh, when you see some of the stills and again those are vast figures and you're sat in the space and all the color is totally immersing you it's it's really uh, really wonderful one project that i think is i think one of the most exciting ones is that even before the the the, the keeper started there was a project undertaken to create the the friends of the norwich museum tapestry so this is essentially the continuation of the Bayou Tapestry telling two different stories, but one of Herod the Wake and one of the Rebellion of the Five Earls. And again, this is a fantastic uh, work that's been undertaken by our volunteer force who have been s embroidering this whole 19-metre-long tapestry that will be hanging in the King's Chamber uh, when, when it's finished. Um, just to give you a sense, there, there he is rather happily with his um, set. That's part of the, the, the scenes and the area that we've, that we've already established, the yellows are the ones that are, that are still being developed. But this follows very, very closely, again, based on all the key aspects of research, of what the stitch styles and the colour styles are for the biotapestry. So again, it's very much in keeping with what you will be seeing or what you would have seen in the 12th century. And that goes down to the way that the... the, the, the colours are working, the way that the stitching is working, how the, um, the figures are portrayed, and again, telling those two key stories of, of early medieval East Anglia. Um, if your Latin is not as good as it used to be, uh, we, we also have other ways of, of engaging with it. So we've built into the space essentially an interactive touchscreen that's housed in a uh, medieval-looking writing desk, which will enable you to sort of swipe back and forth and look through the tapestry in detail. You actually have a little sort of locator bit so you can see where it is in the room. And then look into, you know, touch something and get further bits of information as well as having the text translated. And again, you can't quite see this on this, but there are ways of going in and looking at videos and text about how it's been developed over the years, interviews and photographs with the actual people who have created it, as well as using that as a, as a way of exploring the furniture that's been developed in that particular space. So that's a very, very brief run overview of the whole of the principal floor. Um, and that's just the start, I should say. Um, in addition, we have on the level below a new traditional medieval gallery, which we have developed in partnership with the British Museum. So this is at the level that you used to sort of walk in, but we've cut half the floor away. Uh, we've taken actually the whole of the floor away and reset it um, in, a, in a new material. But the layout enables us now to really explore the fantastic collections um, that Norfolk Museum Service has. So large new cases, um, all sort of that, that one's three metres tall, sort of 2.3, um, which enable us to explore a variety of different themes. 
and uh, give you a sense, a little bit of a sense of what that graphic language is beginning to look like. Now, the gallery itself is divided into the notion of how the medieval world saw itself. One of the great difficulties is that no museum collection anywhere has the capacity to really tell a chronological story of, of the great events of even medieval England, let alone a wider, wider structure. So the approach that we've taken was to try to divide it up thematically to look at uh, the medieval world and the way that they saw themselves. And one of the key uh, uh, structures of that is essentially this pyramid approach of those who fight at the top, or those who rule, those who pray, uh, and those who work. And there are a number of, this, this is actually, this is the early uh, 11th century quote that, that flags that. So that's the way that they are viewing their own social constructs. And we utilize that as a way to try to explore the collections and the galleries. So each of these little blurbs, and I'll sort of point out what they are, are some of the, each of these is a different display case, and some of the themes and ideas that are explored within them. So the purple is those who fight, the lords and ladies, notion of chivalry, warfare, noble living, and science, very, very important subject here. The notion of works, um, telling the stories of trade, in particular the trade in, in Norwich, uh, the notions of more of the wool production, manuscript production, medieval life course, who are these people, what are they doing, how are they living, um, and then the, those who pray, the notion of the Christian church, saints, pilgrimage, points of the Reformation. I think it's important to, to underline that due to a mixture of the wealth in the medieval period and the excavations over the last uh, hundred years, the, the Norfolk Museum Service has an incredibly rich medieval archaeological and art historical collection. It's just extraordinary. And in partnership with the BM, lending some of those key uh, objects, which are very high status material, which don't exist in this collection, allows these subjects to be explored in just incredible depth. So to give you a sense, yes, you know, those who work at points of everyday life, these are mirror cases, which have been excavated. I think these are from Pottergate. Um, a shoe, an actual shoe that's coming from uh, just off Magdalen Street, uh, which is actually, it looks much better now. That's an old photograph, and the interior moulds have been taken out and rebuilt by our conservators. But it's incredible, because you get a sense of, that's the footwear that people are actually wearing, the brooches that people are, are, are wearing, the buckles, there's concepts of the time before buttons. All those are, are explored within, within the cases. As I mentioned, we also are able to explore points of international trade, the links that Norwich had across Europe and the fact that it was the second city, that when you would have walked through the streets in the mid-15th century, you were likely to hear a vast range of languages in the same way that you hear today. You know, this, these two uh, jugs, this is coming from, from France, again found here, this is coming from Italy, all found in excavations. Uh, in, in Norwich itself. So you're able to highlight those stories and tell those points of, of, of international trade and the links with the city. In fact, this is an early um, mayoral role and the number of the mayors who are themselves also merchants is a very, very interesting point. Um, and then it sort of manifests itself in something a little bit like this. So this is a mock-up of one of the displays that will come together. So we have, again, just pointed at international... Uh, uh, ceramic ware, huge amounts of weights, jetons, this chest which is being uh, shipped in from the Baltic. We know that from the work on the oak, it's a dendrochronological oak. 
um, Robert Janus, who's one of the mayors himself, and Mercer, and buried in uh, St. George's Church in Colgate. So we're able to pull out individual people stories as well as highlighting that wider understanding of the importance of Norwich as a city and that wider point of medieval life course. Um, but it's not just, uh, in each of these, we don't just have points of um, objects and labels and a sort of very traditional didactic approach. We've looked to integrate other ways of interpretation. So one of them is we made a large uh, run of sort of videos, this will work, to try to put context into how uh, those buckles and brooches work. So this will be a video that is visible inside the gallery space, adjacent to the cases, um, and you're able to then see actually what do all these different pieces do you know how intricate is it you have buckles there you have appropriate points all of these different stages that give context to the material that's sitting sitting on the in the case itself and there's a number of these which explore um, different time periods so you can see how it's changed difference between the 12th century and the 15th century and the difference between people of status and some of the religious uh, orders as well. So it gives a wonderful context because otherwise you, you know, we have the pins, we don't have <laughs> the rings, but then suddenly that's what they all would have brought together with, especially since in many respects the textiles are often the, the point that, that doesn't survive. Um, as I mentioned, those who pray, and again there's an incredibly rich collection uh, here with specific links in particular to Norfolk um, so both of these are this is material that's coming specifically from Bromholm um, it's a major pilgrimage site up on the uh, north coast um, this is one of the pilgrim badges from Walsingham again still a very important uh, uh, shrine and it allows us to explore both the wider structural points of the medieval church, we get used to that and we're seeing them, but also in the very personal aspects of faith, how people were engaging with them. And, you know, it was, um, it was really very interesting in April of 2020, we were all sitting around and I was thinking about this and thinking about all of these, how are we going to engage with this material? And just seeing the complete and utter parallels with how people were acting in 2020 with how people were acting in 1346. You know, what, what do you do? Do you go to your country estate? Do you, you know, go and visit? How do we deal with these great life changes? How do they deal with them? And so suddenly we have this opportunity to explore this. And there's some very poignant moments. I mean, this wonderful tiny reliquary is actually only about that big. It's actually small, but would have brought so much focus and devotion and piece to, to, to people who are wearing it. You retain again huge wonderful pieces. This is actually from um, St. John Madden Market, this incredible incredible screen and the survival of, of pre-Reformation material in, in Norfolk makes the opportunity for this gallery extraordinary. Show the colour, the dynamic nature of the sculpture uh, as opposed to what we're uh, often faced with in a more whitewashed context. And again you know, the notions of being able to put this material and explore some of those themes within those cases, within those uh, natural colour schemes. I should mention that it's, uh, we have further material that's been really exciting from those other aspects of um, our interpretation. So this is a, um, 
this is a flip book that you'll be able to play with in trying to get the church set out to a various various points of liturgy, which is quite fun. And this is a manuscript from the Priory in Castle Acre, which we were very fortunate to have a grant to conserve. So we've been able to unbind it and rebind it. Uh, but as part of that, we have also now had passages from it recorded by the choir uh, at Norwich Cathedral. So you'll be able to sort of sit and listen, and the sort of the yellow will go across the the notes and you have your Latin here along with your translation so you'll be able to hear it being sung adjacent to the object itself. So suddenly the contextualization of these pieces, the sights and the sounds, haven't quite got to smells yet, um, will, will be present in the gallery space. And then finally as I said, I'll just wait for that. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned, those, those who fight, those who rule. So the very traditional concepts, your sort of ideas of, of medieval world, both <coughs> the fantastic uh, uh, helmets and breastplates that they have, this brigadine armour, which is extraordinary, this is velvet. This is a red velvet that survives. Uh, this is the outside of it. So the inside is this, this layered plate material that, that comes really very popular in the <coughs> 14th century onwards. But then a number of pieces, so again, a chance to highlight that, in your traditional ways as well as weapons, but then also looking at other concepts uh, that are perhaps less familiar, thinking about the litigious nature of the medieval world, that there's actually so much uh, 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 work that's being done from, from a legal standpoint, all those scribes, all those documents, all those land transfers of deeds, the notion of currency, those points of jurisdiction that we talked about earlier with um, stages of, of the Bailey and some of the early... Um, Stories of Norwich, where after the Charter of uh, 1404, you have the right to elect mayors and the establishment of the corporation, and that being manifested in, in the seal matrices. So these are just some of the stories that we're able to touch upon through, through the objects, and I realize I'm probably slightly going over time. But again, working with the BM to borrow some of these incredible, incredibly high-status objects, this one. The, the Chatelaine casket, this wonderful ivory bobbin, this is actually Norwich's, which is wonderful, which is the 12th century, um, it's about that large walrus ivory piece, um, but incredibly high-status material that enable us to show all sides of medieval life, both from your, re your regular day through your churches, through the very highest levels of society. And again, we have rather fun points of trying to create different methods of interpretation. So this was one of our learning colleagues um, who, who, who does this. So using the weapons that we have on the display here and one of the manuscripts that taught people how to fight in the 15th century, he looks to, to translate it <coughs> and then enact it. And there's a number of those that sort of explore some of the different weapons there. So there's a, there's a whole range of ways that we've presented the interpretation. Uh, in the gallery space. Um, oh, probably don't want to watch that again. Very briefly, because I know I'm probably going on far, far too long. Then you have the ground floor space, and this is a multifaceted space. You have the, the north side here, which is where much of the original building archaeology is still very visible, and this is essentially a space where we explore how we know what we know about the development of the castle. You can see <coughs> where it started to fall down when they were building it in the 12th century because the mound that they expanded hadn't settled yet, so they had to redo the stitching. You can see aspects of the different stonework. 
we have the pier bases that used to hold up the, the floor above or survive at the very lowest level, and they will be highlighted in, and interpreted, as well as having, uh, you can just about see it, there will be a light sculpture of fiber optic tails um, sort of dangling above in the arcade archway, so you get a sense of the scale and the size of it. In addition, there will be uh, points for virtual reality. You'll be able to actually put on a headset and see how the space used to look and how it changed and was rebuilt over time. Um, but one of the key facets that underscore the project, I've talked about access, both intellectual and physical access, but ensuring that there is capacity for engaging with all range of um, visitors. And as part of that, we have a dedicated early years space, um, which is also on the ground floor. Uh, this utilizes um, the concept of snap. So it's sort of snap the dragon, and this is Muzz. Uh, the mouse, his, his friend there, so you'll be able to walk into this space where you have to book in and you have to bring an under five. You can't just go as a... <laughs> I know, I know that's what we're all thinking right now. Um, but enables us to sort of try to recreate some of the ideas that you see upstairs with the, with the red lining, with the doorways, with the little bits of graffiti, the little muzz graffiti, as well as points where they are able to interact. Um, so it acts as a launch pad for those, they are exploring the same ideas, they're exploring the same concepts, set to their sort of notion of pre-literate levels, but also dynamically arranged so that you have the capacity to utilize it both for um, individual use, so booked use, or through group sessions. And again, working from access perspectives across a wide range of these. So that's catered for within, within the design. Um, so that's really a, a fast run through of many of the different things that we are we are doing. It's an ongoing project. Uh, we're still we're still going. The plug, absolutely, um, because it's one of those uh, stages. Having done this before, every time you pull out a stone, something ever so slightly changes, and you have to look at it again. But I will. I'll finish there. Thank you so much for your attention. I hope that was that was of interest, and uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, when it when it's open. Thank you.